Yes. What's my take on the Pope's visit? Evangelifish. Um, no, I I think that I'm, I'm right now, and, and just while well, pause, I'll tell you more what I think in a couple weeks. Um, October, October twenty seventh is Reformation Sunday traditionally. It marks um, Martin Luther nailed the ninety five theses to the door of the Wittenberg. Um, cathedral on the All Hallows' Eve, and so the Sunday before that is traditionally Reformation Sunday. This Reformation Sunday, I did this to try to space things out, because what I wanted to do is to have Christmas this year actually have Christmas messages. Last year, we did Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in December. This year, we're actually going to do Luke 2, the shepherds and the birth of Jesus, and then we're going to have the cantata. The cantata is actually going to be before Christmas. It all is going to be nice. But to make that happen, I had to sort of space some things out. And um, so that gave me space for a message. And so one of the things I wanted to do, and I didn't even realize the Pope was going to visit at the time, was the Gospel and the Reformation. And so on, on, um, no, that's September. So, so October 25th, sorry, October 25th, um, the Sunday after our, or is it the 18th? I don't know. One of them is that. Sometime in October, we're going to do the gospel and the Reformation, understanding um, the rediscovery of the gospel. It won't be to attempt to bash Roman Catholicism, but to understand, we, we lose those doctrines that we don't understand the clarity. Here is the confusion. Here is the clarity. We need to see that clarity so that we don't get confused, is basically the point. Um, as I understand it, there are plenty of Roman Catholics who are Christians. Roman Catholic teaching is non-Christian. Roman Catholic teaching on their books and in their councils and in their canons is another gospel period, full stop, and if anyone buys... And so I want to be careful about talking about Roman Catholics. My dad was a Roman Catholic who didn't believe a quarter of the Roman Catholic teaching. So I don't want to speak about Catholics, but people who hold to Catholic doctrine, and if anybody holds to Catholic doctrine, it's got to be the Pope, right? Fair enough? Then I would say he's not a Christian if he believes what his church professes. More than that, he's a false teacher, and he promotes a false religion. So I, I, I have as much interest in what the Pope's doing as the Dalai Lama. Um, I really don't care. Um, yes? Oh, I posted that on Facebook. You can get years off of purgatory if you follow the Pope on Twitter. It's an indulgence. No, no, I posted it. It's not a joke. Kid you not. Kid you not. Okay. But I don't, my point isn't to mock or drag the Catholic Church. The one point I do want to make clear is there is this growing confusion. That, hey, we pretty much all believe the same thing. No, we don't. And, and I, don't want to, I don't want to mock and ridicule, but there needs to be enough clarity lest anyone think, no, at the end of the day, we all believe the same thing. No, there, there was a pretty significant disagreement, and people burned at the stake over it, and we haven't reconciled. We, we still disagree. And so I want to be as respectful as I can, yet, no, we aren't both saying the same thing. Greg. Oh, oh yeah. At, okay, so, so, so Martin Luther does, does the 95 Theses, and at the Counter-Reformation Council of Trent, they, what are we going to do about this? And a number, number of things they did at Trent was they announced these anathemas, and the, and the Greek anathema um, is damned or cursed. 
Paul anathematizes in Galatians. Anyone preaches another gospel, let him be damned or cursed. They, one of them is if anyone says there's salvation outside of the Holy Catholic Church, let them be anathema. If anyone does not recognize the Pope, let him be anathema. If anybody says that man is justified by faith alone apart from works, let him be anathema. At Vatican II in the 1950s, they reaffirmed all of the canons of, of, the, uh, of Dort. Um, not Dort, counter, Trent, sorry, that would be. Sorry. They, they reaffirmed. So in 1950s, they reaffirmed every, they damned us six ways to Sunday back in the Counter-Reformation, and then they reaffirmed all of those in the 1950s. And so as the Catholic doctrine stands, we're all damned, clearly. Like That's their position. So they can talk nice, but in their books and what they teach, we're all, like they recognize the difference of opinion, the difference of understanding. And so we want to respectfully disagree. And the point isn't to beat up and kick and, you know, mock but no, absolutely, they, they still do. In fact, I'm going to, I'm burning a copy right now for Tom Scepter. Whoa, Tom Scepter. But I've got this really, really helpful two-message thing by R.C. Sproul. Um, and he, uh, he gave it at the Shepherds Conference, MacArthur Shepherds Conference, about seven years ago. And he did two messages. One, where he, respect, I think pretty respectfully, lays out the Roman Catholic understanding of the gospel and justification. And he, he's done his homework, he's quoting the sources, he's using their terminology, he's lazy. And you, you, when you understand it, you're like, wow, that's what they believe? And then the second message, he lays out a Protestant or a Romans 3 understanding of justification. And it's a really helpful comparison. I think it's a really good conversation starter if you've got Catholic friends. I sort of suckered some, some people, in, some family I know into it, saying, hey, you know, um, R.C. says he's going to say what Catholics believe. I'm not a Catholic could you check and see if he does it right? Because I can tell you he does a good job of the Protestant side. Oh, let me see this. And he just lays it out. But it's really, really, um, you'll see the difference. These aren't things that are close together. These are things that are miles apart. Dave. Or consubstantiation. I don't believe it's written into our doctrinal statements. I'll be happy to tell you what I believe. I don't know if the elders have discussed this, so I couldn't even tell you what they believe, but I'll be happy to tell you what I believe I think the Bible says. I just want to be clear. I don't know if this is an issue that we've come together and put our heads together. And So I'll let the other elders speak for themselves. I believe that the meal is a memorial meal and is not sacerdotal in any sense. Um, the word sacrament or sacramentus, we were, look, we were talking about this in our men's Bible study last week, actually. It can simply mean a symbol or a sign, but frequently people view it. Here's the point. Anytime we act in faith, anytime we act in obedience in faith, God is going to minister grace to us. So is there a grace that's ministered to us as we take the Lord's table? Sure there is. I don't think it's through the vehicle of the bread and the grape juice. And that's, that's what, if you hold to it being a sacrament, and there's a sense in which this actual unit, this wafer, and according to Roman Catholicism, it actually physically, put it under a microscope, it is the blood and the body of Christ. Okay? Luther couldn't hold to that, but he said, okay, sort of in a platonic sense, in, with, under, and around, consubstantiation, it's there. It's still bread and it's still wine. It doesn't actually physically change, but spiritually it's there. And so the question is, are we in any real sense eating and drinking Christ? I don't, I don't think we are. I think in John 6, go to John 6. Um, now, you know how metaphors work, right? A metaphor is, it works with a key. You've got to understand how something is like something. Okay, in what way is something like something? 
Jesus in John 6 has an extended discussion about how you've got to eat his flesh and drink his blood. But at the beginning of that discussion, he gives us the key to the metaphor. What, in other words, what, what is eating like and what is drinking like? What does it mean to eat and drink Jesus? In John 6, verse 35, he gives us the key to the metaphor. And once you see the key to the metaphor, I think it's pretty simple and straightforward what he's saying. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. So what is coming to Jesus equated to? Eating, right? If if coming satisfies hunger, then coming to him is equated with, metaphorically, with eating. Whoever comes to me is not going to be hungry. Whoever believes in me is not going to be thirsty. So you've got to eat and drink. The the equation is, you've got to come to me and you've got to believe in me. The key to the metaphor, right there in verse 35, I'm the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not be hungry. Whoever believes in me, before he ever talks about eating and drinking, he sets up the key to the metaphor. I'm talking about believing and coming to me. <clears throat> and coming to me satisfies hunger. Believing me satisfies thirst. So now when he talks about eating and drinking, it's just under, supposed to be understood. We're talking about believing and, and, and coming to him. The reason he keeps talking about eating and drinking is because he's trying to connect that the manna that Moses gave in the wilderness was meant to prefigure, you need the food that comes from God. You need, you need to depend upon that which God gives. We're, to, we're looking to Christ for our sustenance. We get our energy. We get our strength. We get our vitality spiritually from him, and we look to him. So the meal that we take symbolizes our ongoing feeding on, our ongoing believing, our ongoing cleaving to Christ. I don't think the meal itself conveys any special grace other than the grace conveyed when Christians act in faith and obedience. Um, so that, that would be, Dave, my, my answer. So um, I, I think I don't. That said, Paul absolutely says, and you got you to do the both hand, right? So on the one hand, there are those people, I think, who overestimate its importance. I mean, Ro- Roman Catholicism on the books has got casuistry. Ca- casuistry is the term for uh, case law versus a general principle. So a general principle is love your neighbor. Case law, love your neighbor by, if you have a flat-topped roof, put a parapet around it. And Paul can do casuistry. If, uh, if a wife has a believing husband or an unbelieving husband, he consents to live with her, let her not leave him. He's got a specific case issue, right? Um, Rome has got on the books case law. What happens if after the Eucharist is consecrated and it becomes the body and blood of Christ, what happens then if it falls on the ground and a mouse eats it? Then what? Because if you really, no, no, because if you really, you got a problem if you really believe that really, physically, DNA is the body and blood of Christ. You just, they got, they, 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 I'm not sure what the answer is. I think the mouse has to go in a cage. You can't kill the mouse. I mean, they got, they, they've answered that question. Um, which, if you, which you should answer that question if you really think it's the body and blood of Jesus. He's, that's why the priest has to finish drinking the cup. He can't leave anything in it. And he wipes it out because you can't leave the blood of Jesus lying around. Um, and so, anyway, yeah. So that would be my answer, Dave. I, I, I believe it's important. Now, just because I don't believe it itself is doing anything, I don't believe the rite itself is channeling anything. Nothing is specifically coming through that channel, which would be, if you did think it was a sacrament, then you're saying this rite channels something, some power, some grace, some blessing, something. I don't think it does. I think anytime Christians act in obedience and faith, grace is channeled. But I don't believe this is a vehicle. This is a host. When you hear like leaving Lutherans, so the host, this is the thing in which is housed the grace. I don't think there's any grace housed in the bread. 
that doesn't mean we can take it lightly and flippantly and say it's unimportant because Paul says people for doing that are dead in Corinth. So it's a serious, solemn, and important thing that we need to not take lightly. But I don't think we should... So the balancing act is either we just say, who cares about communion since it's not channeling anything. All that matters is I believe in my heart. That doesn't work either. You can disrespect and disappreciate this symbol. Symbols are important. Uh, symbols are big time important. God was pretty serious about the symbol of circumcision for the sign of the covenant. Even though we learned circumcision itself didn't save anybody, it was a pretty big deal. Um, the rainbow is a sign of a covenant. It's a pretty big deal. You know, um, Signs of covenants are pretty big deals. And we can profane signs of covenants or we can honor signs of covenants. And the memorial meal is a sign of coming and believing in Christ, as I understand it. That's Jeremy's answer, um, not... We have the church. I can't speak for the body of the elders simply because we haven't talked about it. Not that I think anyone necessarily disagrees. I don't believe there's any material objects in which or rites which channel or move mediate grace. No. 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 Fair enough. No. 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 And. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I, I think the sacrifices of God are broken spirit and contrite heart. That's, that's the prerequisite. A faithful, repentant, believing heart. And people of faith are going to take the Lord's table, and people of faith are going to get baptized, and people of faith are going to obey. But I don't believe any rite or ritual or any physical object mediates and channels grace to the believer. Um, I don't think it's housed in or, or done by if you do this right. No, because I know that the Presbyterians, they think that baptizing the baby accomplishes something. Something is done of significance in that right. So they, in some sense, yeah, right. So in some sense, it's accomplishing something. It's doing something. It's affecting something. I think you got a kid wet, but you know that's okay. That's just me. We we can we can do anyway. Uh, great question. Great question. Uh, any questions on that? Uh, yes. Who? No. Ah. Okay. 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 Yes, and we're, yeah, Mike who? Mike Gendron, okay. I got a book that I was going to give Tom Scepter by a guy named Robert Zims, um, but I'm going to make a copy. Of, I'm going to make, in the coming weeks, you'll see a pile of these CDs, the RC Sproul ones, two packs. I'm going to have Renee make about 20 or 30 of them, and I really recommend, has anyone else here listened to them? I've talked, anyone else again to anybody, the RC Sproul Protestant Catholic view of justification? Deb. Yeah. I think it's really, really helpful. I know Jeff and Renee really liked it. Um, yeah, so they'll be, they'll be out there. Look for them. I'll let you know when they're out there, but they'll be stacks, and you can take them. The copyright on them is free, so I'm happy to give them out. And he's pretty, he's not rude, so I think you could give it to a Catholic friend and not have it be like insulting them um, as, as he lays it out. But, um, I mean, basically, you guys understand how, how the Roman Catholic understanding, why not do this? Pope's in town, sure. Um, the big, the big difference between a Protestant understanding of the gospel and a Catholic understanding of the gospel is um, justification. And justification, in Paul's gospel sense, in the gospel sense of the term, is what is the 
precondition, what is required for God to look at you and say, not guilty, not going to hell, innocent, just. It's, it's a legal verdict, okay? That's the question. How do, we, how do we get justified before God? And our understanding, we believe the Bible teaches, go to Romans 3. Go to Romans 3. Um, is it's forensic and it's imputed. And what I mean by those two terms is this, that in the righteousness we receive initially is purely a righteousness of declaration and crediting. God takes people who are not righteous, who are not acting in righteous ways, who are not behaving as righteous people, declares them legally righteous, credits them with someone else, an alien righteousness, and then begins to conform them so that they start acting more and more righteous. That's our understanding. So it starts with a legal transaction. It starts with a forensic, imputed, that's the accounting word, imputation, righteousness. Um, probably most clearly seen in Romans 3, um, verse 27, what then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded, but what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by law of faith, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then he gives his example in chapter 4, okay? Um, verse 1, what then becomes of, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham is justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and has counted him as righteousness. Now jump down to verse 9. He just quoted Genesis, um, what is that? Genesis, Abraham believed God is kind of right. Is that 11? Genesis 11? 17. 17. Okay. 15? 17? 14? 15 and 6. Okay. Okay, so just quotes Genesis 15, 6. Now look at verse 9. This is key. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he has been circumcised? And the question he's asking is, does Genesis 15 take place before or after Genesis 17? So he's asking, does the declaration in Scripture that Abraham believes God has cut him his righteousness take place before or after he received the ceremonial sign of that righteousness? Well, not necessarily. The children received the sign of circumcision. This is, this is where the confusion over infant baptism comes from, because certainly there is a precedent for people receiving a sign of a covenant before they partake of the covenant itself. Abraham's kids get circumcised. So there is a precedent. Fair enough. We don't, want to, we don't want to make a straw man. There is absolutely a biblical precedent for people receiving a sign of a covenant prior to them actually in their hearts and in their faith embracing it, right? Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. But Abraham is the case example in Paul's logic here. Verse 10, was it counted to him? Um, how then was it counted before 
or after he'd been circumcised. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness could be counted to them as well. So here's, here's the crucial point. Abraham goes ahead and he believes God. and He does many good works. He, the, probably the, the most the pinnacle being offering his son up on the altar, right? And what Paul is stressing is that declaration of God saying righteous takes place before Abraham does any of those things. See, Romans, the Roman Catholic view of the gospel is that um, the gospel is Jesus died on the cross so that, and they absolutely believe that you need to have faith. Absolutely. By faith, you can receive Christ's merit and the merit from the treasury of merit from the saints who lived lives that were so righteous they had merit left over. Um, that's absolutely what they believe. And then that righteousness can be infused by faith to your good deeds, making them actually valuable. So they say, according to Scripture, our best deeds are like medical waste. But when, by faith, the merit of Christ and the dead saints who had extra merit is united, our medical waste good deeds become gold. And so over time, you actually become righteous. So the, the Roman declaration of our view of imputed righteousness is, quote, a legal fiction. Judges don't declare guilty people innocent or they're bad judges. That's their view. So the Roman gospel has God actually making us righteous, which is why purgatory exists to finish the job. Zeb. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another. Yeah. Yeah, so, so the best way that I can the best way I can try to illustrate the Roman Catholic understanding of the gospel is imagine you have a bucket with some holes. You took some nails, you drilled some holes in the bottom of the bucket. And um, you draw three draw two lines in the bucket. At one line, below this line you go to hell. Okay? And then the middle section is if you're if the water's to this line, you go to purgatory. And above this line, you go to heaven, and in, to whatever degree the water's above this line, you actually have excess merit. Okay? So you're born in original sin, your bucket is empty. Then, through the, and sacerdotal is just a term meaning for mediated grace, through the, through the rite of infant baptism, original sin is washed away, the bucket is filled to the brim. That's why if infants, after receiving infant baptism, die in infancy, they go straight to heaven, not even purgatory, because their bucket's full. They received a grace through the means, the administration of the rite of infant baptism, which actually gives grace. The actual rite does, not the heart of faith, but the actual, that's, that's what sacerdotal means. It works operatus ex operati through the working of the work. If it's properly administered, the, the baby now has the full bucket, right? But what happens? That baby sins, and water leaks out of the bucket, and water leaks out of the bucket, and water leaks out of the bucket, and the water line drops and drops and drops. So what does that baby need? That baby needs confirmation. That'd be another refilling of the bucket. But then that, as it grows, he's going to need confession. He's going to need to take the Lord's table in the Eucharist again and again and again. And that's constantly pouring fresh grace back in. And if the child commits a mortal sin, 
let's say. The bucket gets emptied. You've got to start all over again. So that's what mortal sin does. So, you're, so if you're a Catholic, you're constantly worried about where the water line's at. You're constantly trying to pour in more grace than your sin is leaking out, which is why there's a very difficult challenge for Catholics to have any real confidence any moment in time where they're going to go when they die because who knows where the water line is. So even if you've got a full plenary indulgence, it'll fill you back up again. It'll start leaking out again, which is why there's this like need, like a drug, for continued access to the Eucharist because that's my primary means of getting grace. So in the Middle Ages, the Pope brought European nations to their knees by shutting off the, the table. And so the, 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 basically the, the people, the peasants, concluded we're going to be damned and go to hell since the Pope shut down communion. And the Pope has shut down communion because he says our king's not a godly king and he won't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you're, and one after another, European powers and kings bowed to the power of the Pope because their people were revolting. Um, Openly, yeah, yeah, I know the double entendre. Yeah, no, it, it, yeah. So that's that's a, sort of a Roman understanding of the gospel is that you go through these means and these rites. And yes, faith is a necessary element. Faith is a, so even okay. Take take indulgences and penance. Technically, on Rome's books, if you simply buy an indulgence, simply cavalierly, mercenarily to to, to get away with something, it won't do you any good. The Roman Catholic doctrine is that the giving of alms is a good work of contrition, but it only works if it's combined with a repentant and contrite heart. And so Rome would say on their books, look, if you're just buying it to like, hey, how much, I want to sleep with a prostitute, how much do you have to pay to do that? That would do you no good. Now, in practice, in many cases, that's what it becomes. But on their books, they would say, no, no, no. If you're, if you're repentant of your sin, you have to do works of repentance, works of penance, and one of the works you could do is give alms to the poor, give alms to the church. So now it does become mercenary, so that at the time of Luther, Tetzel's running around saying, you know, for a couple ducats, the, this, 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 this indulgence is so good, you could have raped Mary and got away with it, which is actually what caused Luther and a bunch of the other people to freak out. And he said, this, this, this indulgence is so good, it would pardon the man who violated the mother of God. And... He actually got put under house arrest and censure for a little bit for that one. But um, then he was back out selling again. So it becomes mercenary, but, it, but lest we make a straw man out of the Roman view, they would say, no, no, no. These are the accompanying works of repentance. That, 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 that are, so it's always faith, they would say, is always necessary, a necessary ingredient. You've you got to have repentance and faith for those, good, for those indulgences to have any benefit, but they're combined with works. Faith and works coming together, and the merit of Christ producing a righteous person. And so that God doesn't declare people righteous, he makes them righteous, is the Roman view. Which is why you need purgatory to finish the job, because very few of us, in their view, would actually attain righteousness in this life. And that's... Okay, any, any, yes? Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the question, Elsa, is, is to whom much is given, much is required. How much do they know? Oh, sure, if they know that, they're guilty of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, in this country, I'm just saying, I don't know what individual people know. And, I, and the other thing I know is that in America, the Roman Catholic Church has, has a long leash. Rome's, le I mean, no, there's, I mean, you, you watch Father Manning on Larry King denying things that are strictly Vatican doctrine. And, and the Roman Catholic Church is not wielding a strong hand with the, with the American 
Roman Catholic Church. What that means is individual Catholic churches on street corners may hold to varying degrees of official Catholic doctrine. So just because it's on the Vatican VU website doesn't guarantee it's what's being taught at that Catholic church. Because the, the Roman Catholic Church has given the American Catholic Church a pretty lot of leniency. I mean, officially, it's Roman Catholic doctrine, no birth control, I mean, no abortions, no birth control, and yet 70% of American Catholics are pro-choice. And that gives you an idea of just how, how wide of a leash. They're not cracking down on it. So I wouldn't assume anything. I'd ask questions. Um, but yes, if you're aware of what Rome teaches and you stay, there's going to be culpability. Absolutely. I, but I, I, you got to ask questions. You got to get more information because they can be all, yeah, you don't know how aware you are or what. You may even have, you know, somebody who's actually teaching pretty sound stuff from the pulpit in, in a Roman Catholic church. It's possible. Uh, I just would ask questions. I wouldn't want to go make judgments. So I want to clearly distinguish between speaking objectively, clearly, and emphatically on official Roman teaching, which I think you can do, and evaluate that and say it's, it's, it's from the pit of hell, and it's a false gospel, and it's wrong, and it's so wrong it's going to damn people. And I don't know what to make of the Catholic Church down the street because I don't know what they believe. You know, I, my dad is a good example of that. My dad didn't believe a quarter of the stuff Rome teaches. Um, and so, I don't know. Yes? From what I understand, well, you, you know, I don't know as much to know. Can we apply the same reasoning to Muslims in America? Probably not, because um, A, Muslims, even though they're probably looser in America, have a much harder grip on things than Rome does. And two, Rome's dancing around the gospel. Rome's got the right book, it's got the right God, it's got the right Jesus, and there's... there's right, but, right, but Islam doesn't have anything remotely close to the same God, the same Jesus. Yeah. Sure. Well, maybe but then perhaps, but I saw, I saw Carson clarify, and he said, I think what I'd be saying, a person who holds to Muslim teaching. And that's what he means. So a person who holds to Catholic doctrine is lost. A person who goes by the moniker Catholic, I don't know. And the person who goes by the moniker Muslim, I don't know what they believe either. I mean, it's America where we've totally separated what you believe from anything of consequence. Um, so, yeah, yeah, sure. Yes. You, you, we can no longer assume just because someone identifies with a moniker and a name that the body of belief that traditionally went with it is what they believe. I mean, how many people say they're Christians? Well, yeah. No, I was just, I was listening to, I'm reading a book, to Total Truth. 75% of Southern Baptists insist that Belief in Jesus is essential to getting to heaven. And 75% of Southern Baptists insist that um, there's multiple ways to God. Which means 50% are in, at least 50% are in internal conflict. And that, that's part of the problem in the West in America is we got people believing all sorts of contradictory ideas. So I'm a Muslim. What does that mean? It probably might just mean I sort of self-identify as sort of Islamic. I like that culture. 
It doesn't. It used to mean, here's a doctrine, set of beliefs and doctrine that I hold to. Th- those names don't mean that anymore for a lot of people. So we can't assume anything. I'm Muslim. I just mean, I really dig that vibe. I like to dress. No, no. You know what I mean? It just might mean I really... I want to grow a beard and, you know, pray to Mecca. I think that's cool. You know, so I'm expressing my spirituality. I don't know. Okay, qu- yes, yes. Let's go to Philippians. Hold on, hold on. Let's go to, I got the question. I'll deal the question. Let's go to Philippians. Lee, he asked me. Come on, Lee. Come on. <laughs> the question is, I believe, what is, to some degree, the Pope is, is increasing people's interest in Christianity. To some degree, they're turning to the Bible. To some degree, they're turning to Christ. I'll say what Paul says in jail. Philippians um, chapter... Um, is it one or two? Hold on. Um, some preach Christ. It's uh, wanting to... One what? One fifteen. Okay. Philippians 1. So pray, Paul is... Now get the scenario. Paul is in jail for preaching the gospel. And um, which has got to be frustrating. You get set apart by God to be a missionary, to be a witness go out and proclaim, and you're sitting in a jail cell for a couple of years. And while he's doing that, there are people who are actually going out, trying to rub it in his wounds, trying to, trying to make things worse for him, and that's why they're preaching. They're like, oh. This, I don't, I don't, this is what he says. I want you to know, brothers, verse 12, what's happened has happened really to serve the advance of the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. There are people who are preaching Christ for the wrong reasons. Others from goodwill. The latter do out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What am I to make of this? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. To whatever degree the Pope speaks truth, to whatever degree the Pope exalts Christ, to whatever degree the Pope um, is used by God, the things he says to turn people to the Scripture, amen, I rejoice. To whatever degree anyone does that, whatever their motives, I rejoice. So that, that, would be, that would be my sort of short answer. I don't know how much that he's doing, but to whatever degree, to whatever degree the Pope is causing people to open their Bibles and, and look to Jesus and think about things, to whatever degree he's doing that, amen, hallelujah, even though that doesn't, in Paul's logic, mean the person doing it is off the hook for whatever their motives or reasons are. The Pope will deal with God for where he's at and what he's done. He's not going to deal with me, so I'm not going to try to you know, um, condemn him. But certainly, to whatever degree that's happened, I rejoice. Yeah, Which is why, like I said, it's not a big deal to me. It's like, oh, he's in America. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm not really terribly um, interested. I'm not upset and like, ah, and I'm not, you know, like, yay, I'm just. People, people. Okay, we got two minutes. Anything else? Two minutes. 
Ya. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. I, I got to check my stats, but I'm pretty sure that's about right. Yeah. I'll check. For, for the tape, I just want to make it clear that 75% of all statistics are made up on the spot. <laughs> Um, so, for the tape, I'm, I recall that being the number, but a, a very large amount of Catholics. Certainly, as th there's no difference, if not more Catholics, there's no difference between the American view of pro-choice than... In, hmm. well, that's, tr that's true. I'm just talking about people who identify in polls as Catholic aren't polling any different, if not more. Oh, no, no, there are Catholics who are pro-life. No, there are Catholics who are pro-life. Oh, no, no, there are Catholics who are pro-life, certainly. I'm just saying that there's so many self-identified Catholics that it, it, it doesn't, it's like a drop in the bucket. Uh, anyway, thank you, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes, sir. Give, I can cede the rest of my time to my friend from. Uh, uh, <laughs> Pre preach it, brother. Preach it. Um, okay, praise God. Praise God. Yeah. Amen. And on that wonderful note, uh, we will uh, we'll break, and uh, Greg's, Greg's father needs to visit more often. Um, so have a good afternoon, and small groups tonight. God bless.